Welcome to Campfire, connecting primary producers. Campfire provides a solution-focused community for farmers and fishers to improve work systems and support mentally healthy workplaces. The bushfire season is coming, and for many, this will prompt a variety of thoughts, feelings and fears. These can trigger many reactions, ranging from sensations of dread right through to a racing heart. G'day, I'm Drew Radford, and an organisation that specialises in dealing with personal responses to disaster is Phoenix Australia. Their mission is around understanding trauma and renewing lives. To find out how they can help those concerned about the upcoming bushfire season, their Director of Disaster and Public Health Emergencies, Alexandra Howard, joins us for this Campfire podcast. Alex, thanks for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. Alex, we're going to be talking about helping those facing the upcoming bushfire season, something I understand you're personally experiencing, having just recently moved into a fire zone. But firstly, how does your role help communities? I really work with a lot of organisations and communities to help them better understand the impacts of disaster or things like COVID and with that understanding then help them prepare for the next disaster and so they can hopefully recover better from it. But also I was really interested to say yes to chatting to you because I also have recently one of those many cliche people who've moved from Metro Melbourne to more uh, regional Victoria. So I'm now also in a fire zone and kind of thinking myself about how do I prepare not just practically, but psychologically for a bushfire or, or storms or whatever may hit. Well, Alex, you sound like the right person to be talking to, not just because of what you do for a job, but also because you're living through preparing for a bushfire season yourself. Alex, I've heard the term high alert mode associated with some people during fire season. What does that mean? Yeah, that's right. High alert mode or people might know it as fight, flight or fight, flight, freeze response. It's known by lots of different things, but basically it's a mode that is a survival mode. So it's a really helpful natural human reaction that we all have when faced with disaster or or danger right in front of us. So it's you know, getting the heart pumping ready to get it to the muscles that need it most. So you can run away, you can, you know, lift things that you've never been able to lift before. You can be really focused on the task at hand rather than, you know, thinking about what you had for breakfast that morning. So it's a really important survival mode. But the problem is for people who have experienced trauma, often they can end up being stuck in this high alert mode. So even when the danger has passed, they're still really on edge. They can feel a a tightness in their chest or racing heart anytime they're reminded of the bushfires that have happened or anything else that might remind them of a, a past trauma. So yeah, really at its heart, this high alert mode is a really useful survival mechanism, uh, that humans have evolved to have, but the problem happens when the danger's passed and we're still stuck in that high alert mode that can be as you can imagine incredibly exhausting emotionally and and physically i have absolutely no doubt alex that it would be exhausting on both the physical and the emotional front the question beckons then well 
how does someone regain a sense of control and, and get themselves out of that mode? Yeah, look, there are a few different things that someone can try. And certainly I'll start by saying that if, you know, someone feels like it is too much and too overwhelming, then obviously always having the option to go and speak to your GP about it to see if you can get extra help. But for a lot of people, if they do notice these sensations of high alert mode, a lot of them are physical sensations like a racing heart or a change in breathing or feeling kind of tense in our body. Um, And because they're those physical things, sometimes just doing something directly to calm those physical sensations can actually kind of calm you more generally. So if you have noticed a change in your breathing then doing some you know slowing down your breathing can be something really simple that can help then calm the heart rate and things like that or there are exercises that people can do called progressive muscle relaxation or isometric exercises where you kind of tense and then relax your muscles so i think one kind of good way to help with that high alert mode is to kind of directly counter some of those physical reactions that people are experiencing and refocusing on the here and now so reminding yourself that that danger has passed that this is a false alarm (laughs) um, even though your body is kind of telling you otherwise and to yeah really refocus on the here and now can be helpful. Alex anniversaries of disasters are often important moments for a range of reasons but I can imagine there's positives and negatives that come from those as well. I think the best judge of whether doing something to mark the anniversary is the person themselves. So I think the really key thing is for individuals to mark or not mark an anniversary in their own way. So it's probably good for communities to put something on for those people in the community who do want to mark the anniversary in some way. But really acknowledging that there is no one way to mark an anniversary. It might be that someone needs a day alone on that anniversary or to go to a particular location themselves or away from that area. And I've also spoken to some people who've experienced trauma where I have thought that the anniversary might be significant for them, but it actually wasn't. They said to me, this is every day is this bad, (laughs) you know, so we can't even presume that for everyone an anniversary is a day that is loaded with extra significance. So I think the key thing is judging yourself, what's the best symbol or ritual or otherwise that you would like to do to mark an anniversary. Alex, your role is helping prepare communities for future disasters. How have you seen people draw upon previous experiences, particularly fire, to prepare themselves better for the future? I think feeling like we've learned something from a previous disaster, you know, at a very practical level. What have we learned since the fire? Acknowledging that quite reasonably you didn't know everything there was to know about fires at the time. Also thinking about what could be done differently. So almost if you, as someone who works in an emergency service organisation or as a volunteer, they often do operational debriefings after any kind of critical incidents. And it's almost taking that kind of mindset and thinking about, well, what happened? What do I know now that means I would do something differently? I think also 
talking to people around you about what your plan is and how you're planning to prepare, making sure everyone's on the same page and practicing as much as possible as well. That means you're more likely to stick with the plan if you do need to. Alex, some great suggestions there and plans are very crucial to that. What about those that have moved into bushfire zones, haven't experienced them before? Any tips on how they can psychologically prepare for a fire season ahead? Yeah, really interesting that you asked that question because I am exactly one of those people. I've, um, like many since the pandemic, have moved from a metro region to a high-risk fire zone. So, you know, having chatted to my colleagues who are also experts in this, getting their advice and, you know, it is, I think, being practically prepared is really important. So going to those country or rural firefighting briefings, chatting to neighbours and other locals about practically what is the best, talking to your family about it. I think having all of the family involved in an age-appropriate way is important for it as well. I think a real focus on practical things and key part of the practical side of organising that I want to pull out separately is connection because we know that connection, a sense of connection and social support is one of the key things for recovery after a disaster. So thinking about who are those key people that I would connect with in an emergency is really important. We also know from research that those people who lost connection with their loved ones for the 24 hours or so after the disaster actually were still struggling more than other people years down the track. That's something that I'm really aware of in thinking of my preparations. But in terms of other things, you know, expecting the situation to be stressful, thinking about how are you prone to react in a really stressful situation? You may not have experienced a bushfire before, but there's probably something else that's been really stressful that would at least give you some clues as to the kinds of ways that you respond to stress and think about what are the strategies that have helped you in the past when you've had a really tough period or when you've been really, really stressed and been in that high alert mode? So I think, you know, you've got your practical preparations and plan and then thinking about what can I do to try and keep my emotions in check if an emergency happens or as in check as possible. Alex, a great personal insight there and thank you for that. How can Phoenix Australia help those that might be struggling in the lead up to bushfire season? Phoenix Australia has quite a few free resources that people can access. So on our website, we have handouts around preparing for bushfire season. And we also have information on removing dead livestock after a disaster, how to remain task focused and, and things like that. Otherwise, for those people who don't feel that they need to go and see a mental health professional, but think they are struggling a little bit and could benefit from some kind of coaching around their psychological well-being, then there's a program called Solar where you can be assigned to a, a coach and then they'll walk you through five sessions to help you with your recovery and resilience from past trauma. So that's uh, for regional and rural Victorians. More broadly, for those who are 
community leaders or in emergency services. Uh, we have had some funding to roll out what's called psychological first aid training or trauma-informed care training to people. So these are trainings that help you help others. So if you're someone in a role where you're likely to have people coming to you for a support after a trauma or after a disaster, then the idea of these courses is that they equip you with skills and information that help you better support people in those disaster periods. That's Alex Howard from Phoenix, Australia. Arguably, those that are most exposed to traumas associated with bushfires are the Country Fire Authority volunteers. A person who's extremely aware of the impacts on them is Cathy Sassoli from the CFA Wellbeing Team. Cathy, I imagine that a reasonable percentage of those that volunteer for the CFA are farmers. Yes, farmers are, are the first people on the ground often in those rural communities. So if there's an event, they're most likely to be the closest people there. They know their area really well, they know their community, and they also have first-hand knowledge, of course, of their own terrain and their response is actually really vital to making sure that things don't get out of hand. I imagine the upshot of that is too then, Cathy, that a lot of them have seen fires over recent years as well. Absolutely. We've got an amazing um, cohort of volunteers and what they've seen and what they've had to deal with has been really huge. And for some of our farmers out in their regions, they've seen some very serious fire events. They're also, some of the um, brigades will also deal with other issues such as motor vehicle accidents and they're having to, to help with some pretty nasty events actually. Cathy, to say that volunteers at the CFA have dealt with some fairly horrendous fires over the last few years is probably a gross understatement really. And it varies obviously from region to region. What sort of impact does the approaching fire season have on some of them? It depends on where each individual is at. Um, We've been going through COVID. So that means that a lot of our brigades have not been able to do their normal trainings that they would have done leading up to this point in time. So they're only able to do essential trainings. So for some of our members, they're feeling a little bit nervous. Some are feeling anxious. Leading up into to the fire danger period, which is where we're now at, can create anxiety for some of our volunteers. You know, the just waiting for the pager to go off or that, you know, you're, you're sitting outside and, and you're noticing the weather and that you're noticing the patterns that are happening with the winds and the heat and the wetness or the lack of wetness. And, and that can just start to trigger a bit of, oh, we need to be ready for this. So there's a, a need to be practically and physically ready and there's a need to be psychologically ready as well. Well, let's pull that apart then a little bit then, Cathy. First of all, in terms of being practically ready, I imagine this is about preparing what, your own property and does that help reduce anxiety? Absolutely. I think when you're prepared for something, you're kind of thinking through a lot of the ramifications of what might happen. And so you're looking at a plan that's going to prepare for all of the what ifs so that if one of those happens, you can just put that plan straight into action. And 
one of the things we encourage everyone to do is to have a, a written and well-practiced plan that every person has a role in so whether it's a family member whether it's one of your workers and that plan can is about the things that will lead up to a bushfire and lead up to the fire risk days that happen so that's when we get our, our warning signs to tell us if there is a code red, if it's extreme, if it's severe. People know what they need to do on those days, what we need to prepare to prepare the home, to prepare livestock, to make sure we know the routes we're going to take and when we're going to take them. All those kinds of things, it just helps relieve people from having to worry about what do I do. And often when we hit that sort of first instance where something has happened we have to put the plan into action we don't actually have time to think about it and we need to recognize that not everybody thinks clearly in an emergency so having it well practiced and planned out just means that people will hopefully automatically slot into what they need to do to get the plan done and everybody knows that everybody else is doing their bit and things can happen and then people can be safe and we can get everybody sorted. Cathy, you talked there about having those plans prepared and practice. What about people, though, that are volunteers? You know, sometimes do they think, oh, that's all in my head. I, I know what's going on. I don't need that list. Or is it bigger than that it's for the family and everyone you work with? Yeah, it is bigger than that. It is for all the family. It's for the people you're working with. So whether you're a volunteer or not, you can access the CFA website and you can download a plan that can give you tips and hints on what you need to put in your plan. It's little things like what are the different routes that you would take? So if we're at home in a house in the middle of the suburb and the house catches fire, everybody in that house should know how to get out of the house and where to go to keep safe. And we do that in a family home. We should be doing that on our farms. One of the heartstring pulls on a farm is that for most people, a farm has been in your family for generations. And it really pulls on people when we're saying, you know what, our buildings are not built to withstand a code red fire event. You have to leave. You have to get your livestock to safety, especially the, the stock that you're dependent on for breeding. So if you are practicing what route you're going to take, so if the fire is coming in from the east, we go this way. If it's coming in from the west, we go this way. You just practice that until it becomes routine. If there is a, an obligation, I think, to when you are working a farm and you have workers that there is that obligation to look after them and to keep people as safe as you can and this is one way to prove that you do that because you have this plan in writing. Cathy we covered a fair bit of ground there in terms of about actually being physically prepared in terms of your surroundings. You mentioned they're also emotionally prepared. What's that involve? Emotionally preparing is giving yourself a bit of space to stop and just ask yourself, okay, the fire season's coming, how am I feeling? And that may sound really silly, but I can just imagine a bunch of farmers all standing along the fence line going, mm, how am I feeling? They might think, oh, that girl needs to be quiet. But actually it's about checking in on yourself. So when we are getting ready for a fire season, we check our pumps, we check all the equipment we're going to need in case we lose electricity, in case we lose connection, you know, the internet can go off. So you, you need to know how you're going to 
connect and contact with people and get what you need for your property and in the same way while we check that to make sure it's working we make sure we've got batteries for the torches we need to check in with ourselves how are we doing what are we doing to make sure that we're okay and able to face what might come along because we don't know what we're going to face in the fire season. We don't know if the fire season will be a gentle season. We don't know if it's going to be a really difficult season. So it's really important that people know how to look out for themselves and who's got their back in this, who can they talk to if they need to debrief something. Are they aware of what they need to be ready for this? Like, do they need to actually go and talk to somebody. So for our CFA volunteers, they have access to MAP, which is our member assistance program. So those are colleges and counselors, therapists, people that they can talk to about, you know, they may be getting images or memories or thoughts about previous fire events or previous issues during fire seasons that might be knocking on the door going, oh, hello, I'm back again. I just want to remind you about this. And we want people to have a chance to talk that out with someone so they can feel that their head is clear to focus on what they need to focus on in a fire event. We also want people to have a safety zone. So somewhere that they know that is a safe place for them to just be and safe people around them. So sometimes it's actually about not thinking about it. It's about just having fun with, with your family and enjoying life and just being normal. Cathy, you talked about the support services on offer, but often farmers, country people in particular, are fairly stoic and reluctant to seize those opportunities. How do you entice them to take that up? You know, I, I think one of the things we need to acknowledge is the intense resilience that our volunteers have and that farmers in general have to have because their events are not just fire. You know, there are droughts, there are disease, there's all kinds of things that farmers have to weather and go through. And while we're telling people, you know, we have this MAP service that's available to you, the volunteers in CFA also have other places they can go to for support. So we have what we call a peer team. So these are volunteers themselves who are CFA members and their role is to be there to support people going through stuff. So it is just a conversation. It is just about having someone to talk to. So I would be encouraging them to think about all the people that they can talk to. We've got communities where they will never need to contact an MAP service because they use each other for that. And we want people to remember who they've got in their corner. So accessing their local peers, talking to their captains, contacting their commanders, all of those people are there for them. Every region has a member wellbeing advisor and um, their role is to support people through all of this as well. So if they find that actually I don't want to talk to that person that's too close to home or they're connected to this, there are people outside they can talk to such as the MWA, such as MAP. But we do find that for our farming communities they do reach out and talk to each other. We want them to actually talk about talking to each other or talking to somebody in MAP to make that a common and normal process so that others will as well. You know, people don't just hold it in on themselves because when they do that, it can turn and it can become something that's really difficult to manage. We want people to be open about 
whatever they're going through, whether it is relief, whether it is something difficult, whether it is celebrating, we want people to talk. Cathy, I think that's great advice for everyone, regardless of whether they're a CFA volunteer or not. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights and experience with us in this Campfire podcast. Cathy Sassoli, CFA Wellbeing Team Leader, thank you for joining us on this Campfire podcast. Thank you for having me, Drew. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for listening to the Campfire podcast. For more information regarding Campfire, please visit the National Centre for Pharma Health website. All information is accurate at the time of release. This podcast was developed by the National Centre for Pharma Health and is funded by the Victorian State Government's WorkSafe Work Well Mental Health Improvement Fund.